Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Malcolm McIntosh, who's Professor and Director of the Asia-Pacific Centre for Sustainable Enterprise in the Griffith Business School. And today Malcolm is going to talk to us about the necessity of switching to a low-carbon economy and the kinds of issues that the Asia-Pacific region is going to face in attempting to do so. So I'll hand over to Malcolm. Hi. Um, nice to see you. Some uh, familiar faces as well. I'm going to run through a number of different issues for you. I'm going to talk, obviously, at a very global level about uh, the necessity for a low-carbon, sustainable enterprise economy. And I'm going to talk about some of the particular public policy issues for certain nations in that region. And I'm going to relate them on a much wider basis. I'm going to talk about some of the business imperatives. In other words, I'm going to mix a bit of private and public policy at the same time because we're a centre for sustainable enterprise. I suppose a significant proportion of our work is done with uh, what's often called the business sector. But actually most of our work is on governance issues at a local, local or a global level. So I suppose I'm going to um, perhaps surprise you a bit by talking about uh, international business as much as I'm going to talk about um, anything else. And I apologise for having PowerPoint. I sometimes don't use PowerPoint because death by PowerPoint. Um, but I've got quite a lot of uh, tables that I wanted to flash up in front of you, and I've got far too many as well. So we'll mix and match, judging by the reactions on your face, this, and uh, see where we get to in this hypothesis. Because what I want to do is position um, uh, the Asia-Pacific region within an international context, and I want to talk about public and private issues within that. And I want to also uh, talk to you about uh, what I think this new economy looks like and where it's going, which I think is a, a, a hypothesis uh, which is um, very complex. And I think we're in an extraordinary space at the moment uh, internationally in terms of trying to rethink how we do almost everything. And I don't think we've woken up to the imperatives enough. Perhaps some people in some universities have. Um, and I only arrived here six months ago, and I find the debate here slightly uh, different from where I've come from in that there's still a debate about the possibility of climate change science being real here, uh, whereas where I come from, that's a very much a minority sport. Um, so it's different. So that sort of frames my background. Most of my work, as I say, has been at a very international level. Um, it's perfectly possible... Uh, even given the title of this seminar, to argue that actually the future lies in the hands of these uh, two people here. Um, I think it's a great photo as well because it says a lot about posture and positioning and negotiating um, uh, style, tone and register as well. And it, it would be possible for me to not talk about any of the other countries in the Asia-Pacific region, indeed not talk about any of the other countries on the planet, and just focus on these two countries because I would argue that the future uh, does lie in their ability to uh, negotiate uh, and talk to each other and find some way of, of reasoning a future for us all. And therefore the posture of these two men like this I think is also quite interesting. But people still don't seem to understand actually uh, the way in which the negotiations are happening. And some of you may have attended our session on lessons from Copenhagen two weeks ago that we ran South Bank. Anybody here? 
that's good. So I can make the same jokes again and you won't, you won't know. Okay, so you haven't seen this slide before for start. That's good. So you know that Niall Ferguson referred to Chimerica, this link between China and America, uh, as also as a chimera as well. Uh, but uh, what's interesting uh, in terms of these two countries, and particularly China, of course, that it's a member of both G2, a member of G20, and a member of uh, G77 at the same time. Uh, and then alongside that, we've got a European failure to um, collectivize its, its thinking. So China's, in a sense, got three legs and is in a very interesting position. And I would argue that if you don't understand China, you don't understand this century. But most of you would know that because most of you are from the Asia Institute, aren't you? Am I right? And most of you are in public policy as well. I think that this probably explains most of what um, I'm about to show as well as anything else. The idea that, in fact, it's the last 200 years of industrialization which have caused the problem rather than those emitters now is, I would argue, at the heart of the debate and at the heart of the failure, as some people see it, of Copenhagen. How many of you think that Copenhagen was a failure, by the way, or a disaster? What's the general consensus around the table? How many of you think that there was something that says successful that came out of it, that it was... Yeah. How many of you don't know or are undecided? Because at least three or four people haven't moved. <laughs> some of you put up your hands twice as well. Um, I think that uh, Copenhagen was grossly misrepresented. Um, we wanted to see a particular event, a circus, etc., and actually there were lots of other circuses going on around it, and I'm going to argue that there are lots of other ways that we can tackle climate change as we go forward as well. But I think that this particular quote uh, is, is central, uh, particularly for those of you. How many China experts have we got in the room? A couple of China there? Okay. I have to keep reminding people, and we've uh, been doing quite a lot of work with Chinese companies. I sat around a table in Beijing last year, uh, running a round table on what this new uh, economy would look like, and round the table were all the world's largest companies. They were all, they were all Chinese state-owned enterprises. Uh, they were completely conversant with the science of climate change. They were completely conversant with the need for a low-carbon, sustainable enterprise economy. They were highly articulate. I'm talking about you know, PetroChina, etc., and Canoc, etc., all of those companies around the table. I had a more nuanced conversation with them than I've had with almost any other industrial sector group anywhere else in the world. So when you try to explain to people that now, because of the way that China has, um, as it were, overtaken on the outside, um, despite Copenhagen, they're now the largest producer of wind turbines, solar, um, photovoltaic cells, and clean technology. Generally, they're now the largest um, electric car factory and things like that. I mean, the statistics keep rolling on and on. Basically, they have stolen or taken the technological um, advantage. So it's not just that China is large, but actually it has taken, uh, it has shown a technological lead as well. And I think we need to redefine what we need, by, what we mean by global governance in the 21st century because of the way in which they're um, acting. But by comparison, I think the other lesson that we learned from uh, Copenhagen, which I don't think was much written about as well, was just the extraordinary difference between China and the U.S. And we didn't we learn quite a lot about the U.S. Constitution as well and the limits of uh, the power of the uh, U.S. president. Uh, I would argue in that he was tied uh, considerably, although he appeared to be able to uh, converse and he appeared to be much more flexible. There were various photographs of him, as you see, leaning forward and talking to people. So you could argue as well, if you think of China and you think of the US, that actually the future of climate 
change negotiations and therefore the future of the planet lies in the hands of two groups. One is the Chinese Communist Party and one is a group of about 100 million Americans who deny the climate change science, they're creationists and believe in the rapture. Those of you who have seen The Road, there's a whole series of films coming out in that area at the moment. Those people who have quite a hold on US thinking, if you think of George Bush, well, you had a prime minister here as well who denied the science, didn't you? So you could argue that these two groups are the two most powerful groups on the planet, the Chinese Communist Party and those uh, market fundamentalists, to quote George Soros, uh, in the States, who are waiting for the rapture, deny the science. Um, and, of course, this symbiotic link between uh, China and uh, America is also extraordinary. One indebted to the other, both of them reliant on each other. But the thing that's forgotten by everybody, um, although it shouldn't really be forgotten by Australia, is that more, still more than 51% of all defence spending globally is the United States. 500 forward bases, etc. I'd say 51% of all defence spending, enormous. If you believe in the way in which the world is now secure, and I'm going to come on to talk about human security later, um, that security is provided by the United States. So the umbrella that they provide, or the world's biggest industry, or uh, that homogenisation uh, that they provide, there's a direct link between that and uh, negotiating for climate change. And if you look at the, um, the current discussion between China, Japan, uh, Taiwan, etc. That is absolutely fascinating. You've got a, a, a Japanese Prime Minister at the moment apparently leaning towards China, understanding that their security lies with China, both their economic security uh, and perhaps their military security. So I, that's a space to um, watch very, very carefully. And even the, the rapprochement between Taiwan and China, I think, is extraordinary uh, as well at the moment. But that's because uh, if this is the Chinese century, it's the Asian century as well, isn't it? But and just one other thing to add about the U.S. position in this space, which is crucial. Um, uh, I don't know, those of you might agree or disagree, but uh, the British Empire worked because the British controlled the oceans, they controlled the seas. The Americans control land, sea and air, and now what they're talking about is controlling cyberspace. So this intervention through Google and that discussion and Google becoming an issue of U.S. security uh, over the last couple of months I think is also interesting that, so that they will control, nominally control or try to control, uh, for media. That really does change everything, I think, quite interestingly as well. And you could add a fifth one there, land, sea, air, cyberspace and space as well. That's uh, coming up. I pe think people forget that as well. So the issue of security is at the heart uh, of the climate change negotiations in all respects, in terms of energy security, in terms of food security, in terms of climate change security, in terms of uh, national security. It's uh, absolutely crucial. We need to see it in that uh, complex way, which is why I thought that the reporting of Copenhagen was uh, pretty facile, because it was so single issue, it was so one eventish, as it were. And I think that people also, perhaps not in this country, but people fail to understand that so many people really don't buy into the climate change science, that 100 million Americans who believe in rapture. Um, so some of these tables, which I'm sure some of you have seen, uh, some of the projections here, this is actually from the Aust Australian government research, uh, showing um, emissions uh, over the next uh, few decades, showing, you can see there, China and the US roughly similar in 2005, but then this growing projection then 
and similarly, if you look at uh, the BRIC countries, as they're called, and there's another expression around as well, which I don't think I'll use, looking at Brazil, China, India, and Russia. And one of the things I think that's most interesting, and we'll come to this a little bit later, is the way in which public policy towards climate change is evolving in different countries, particularly in different uh, developing economies and the way in which they're tackling it. Some of them are tackling it uh, uh, remarkably well, and others uh, aren't doing so well at all. And we'll come back to, to that as well. Uh, and this is economic uh, growth rates, of course, which put next to greenhouse gases. And then um, I've just referred to this piece of work, which is done by an organization called German Watch, um, which rates climate change performance uh, on a global basis um, by looking at um, emissions, obviously, but also looking at um, the trend in those particular countries, whether it's going backwards or forwards, uh, whether uh, there's public policy to deal with climate change, etc. Uh, they didn't award the top three because they didn't think any country deserved to get first or second or third prize. But they put certain countries there as, as trying hard, quite hard. You see India. And by the way, Asia Pacific, this is an interesting one, Asia Institute. What's your definition of Asia, Andrew? What's my personal definition of Asia? Yeah, well, Asia Institute. What's... In many ways, geographically. Yeah. I have the same problem with Asia Pacific. Yeah. Okay, so does the Asia-Pacific include India is my question. Does the Asia-Pacific include India? Does the Asia-Pacific region include India? This is, this is a, you know. Of course. You say of course. So uh, Asia-Pacific, and then does it include the U.S. in this? So it's actually enormous, or it's a very narrow area that's defined by Australia's strategic interests, particularly being in Queensland, what, 29% of exports last month went to Japan, 13% went to China last month, so... You know, it's either narrow or it's wide. Anyway, I've included India in my definition of the Asia-Pacific region there. So these are, the, according to this, this, this particular rating, these countries have done well. And if you go to the bottom of the, uh, uh, of the ranking here, you'll see that um, China and the United States, if they're included in our definition of the Asia-Pacific region, actually rate uh, very low because of uh, the trend in emissions and because of the development of public policy uh, in this particular area. See, I'm afraid Australia is way down the bottom there. And if you look at the top ten emitters on the uh, smaller chart there as well, you'll see again that a number of the people that we're talking about in the Asia-Pacific region um, are, come out as uh, some of the least uh, able to develop sensible climate change policy. Um, but then some of them are also some of the lowest per capita emitters as well. So we need to bear... Um, that in mind. I told you I was going to bombard you with um, facts and figures here. Um, climate change performance index for newly industrialized countries, you'll see again China and Malaysia come out bottom. And of course they come out bottom because of increased growth and a particular form of economic growth which naturally and necessarily um, consumes resources and produces um, emissions as well, increased emissions. Although this isn't necessarily true, because if you look at the first table there, actually Brazil and India have done remarkably well. In other words, managing to industrialize, but also managing not to increase their emissions as much as other industrializing countries. So it is possible to have growth, but to have lower emissions as well. It isn't a necessary fact that actually to have economic growth you need to have massive emissions. You're bound to have some increase in emissions because we haven't found a way of having a zero carbon economy yet, uh, but it is actually possible uh, to, to grow 
uh, and have a lower uh, ecological footprint. So there's some really interesting lessons there uh, as we move along. And of course this um, thing I have to keep reminding my students, I don't know about yours is, I'm in my 50s and um, while I've been alive uh, the number of people on the planet has doubled so the other factor we have to uh, factor into the whole discussion about climate change is population, one of those great unspokens as well. Uh, if China hadn't had a one-person, one-child policy, you know, there would be 400 to 500 million more people on the planet, etc. That would change some of those statistics. So in my lifetime, the population of the planet has doubled. It's now about seven. And you know the figures of one, ten, twenty as well? Roughly one for, most, for many uh, poorer countries, roughly ten for New Zealand and Europe, roughly 20 for Australia and the United States and Saudi Arabia. Um, and then actually, when you look at the distance that we now have to travel according to the science, and by the way, I believe the climate change science, all my climate change uh, colleagues tell me that it's absolutely rock solid despite the recent scandals. I don't have any doubt to doubt them. Um, the distance that we have to travel is apparently about an 80% cut in CO2 emissions by 2050. Uh, the UK has actually written that into law. Um, but actually, if you look at what's already in the atmosphere that hasn't actually affected temperature rise yet, it actually means that we need about 120% cut in CO2 emissions by 2050, which, which means that we not only have to reduce the carbon we're emitting, we actually have to take it out of the atmosphere. So we have to have, find ways of sequestering it in, in various ways, that which we've already released. Uh, now, that makes the journey that we have to travel, all of us, uh, in the next few decades absolutely uh, extraordinary. So even if you're conservative and you say we only need to travel half of that distance, that's 60%. That's a dramatic change in all of our uh, economies. And an optimistic line on there, just to put that in there, um, it, used to, uh, it used to be true that uh, 1980, to produce one dollar of economic growth, you used about one kilo, you produced about one kilogram of um, CO2. Because of efficiencies, of course, we got that down to about three quarters of that. The trouble is that all of that efficiency gain has been wiped out by population growth. Uh, but also there are some very interesting statistics on things like if you look at cars manufactured in 1980, they were getting more efficient, but they've all got much heavier since then. So actually they're not as efficient as they would have been if they'd remained at the weight that they were in 1980. We all expect everything to be bigger, basically. Even though you think you're buying a smaller car, I'll give you an example of VW Golf 1980 weighed about 30% less than a VW Golf now, for those of you who drive one. So apparently it looks more fuel efficient, but actually because it's so much heavier. So the gains which we've got through technological breakthroughs have been lost because we expect things to get bigger and better. But the positive thing out of that is that actually we know how to make those technological changes. We know how to actually be more efficient uh, in many, many ways. So one of the things that came out of a session we ran yesterday that Mozan was at and was anybody else at? We had a number of people working in the computer sector, IT. We had people working in construction and mining. It's quite clear that actually we have the technology now to be much, much more efficient. The problem that we have is human behavior and politics and a leadership deficit. The technology is already there. In other words, we don't need great technological fixes. We've got those. All the evidence shows that. It's about behavior change. That's, that's the biggest problem in politics and leadership deficit. So don't let anybody fool you into thinking that, that that's where the future lies. Um, just another few things to throw. I don't know whether you saw this, but uh, the survey on the anniversary of the Berlin Wall as well, which showed uh, that uh, 
the majority of people, so this is 29,000 people in 27 countries, thought that capitalism was flawed in some way. Um, quite interesting, that's lowest in Germany, by the way, because it was the anniversary of the end of the Berlin Wall. That's why it comes out low there. But it showed that, it, that the majority of people across 27 countries wanted uh, government to manage wealth distribution, which I think, in terms of public policy and the development of, say, carbon taxes, uh, issues like that, I think that that augurs well uh, for the future. Um, <clears throat> we ran over the last uh, couple of years, roundtables on what this new economy might look like. And uh, we started in the House of Lords in London. Uh, I ran six roundtables there, and then we took it to Cape Town, uh, Sydney, New York, uh, Beijing, and Toronto has been left off there as well. And what was interesting was that there was enormous commonality of thought about what this new economy looked like wherever we were. There wasn't as much variation. There was local politics, there was parochialism, um, etc., but... Actually, there was fundamental agreement across all the roundtables wherever we were on what the issues were. And top of those was scientific literacy. Most people all over the world, whether they're in Beijing or Toronto or whatever, don't understand how the planet works. It's a complex issue. They literally don't understand ecosystems. So I don't know whether any of you are willing to stand up now and explain in five sentences global warming. Etc. And I can ask an MBA class, you know, of people who are going to go off and run companies, etc. Maybe five of them are willing to do it. Actually, most of us have had science taught very badly at school. It doesn't matter which school it was. It doesn't matter which country it was. Quite extraordinary. And people in business that are trying to develop policy for their companies are finding it really difficult to talk to boardrooms about what the issue is and how the issue works. And I'll come to a bit of research later on which shows that most boardroom directors are frightened of talking about climate change because, quote, it's too complex. <coughs> so the, the issue of complexity in understanding systems. So then there's the first line of the Stern report on the economics of climate change, which I'm sure you've all heard of, where it says, you know, uh, global warming is the greatest market failure that humanity has ever seen as well because we didn't internalize those externalities that didn't internalize pollution costs, which is what we're now doing in terms of developing low-carbon economies. We're simply uh, internalizing externalities. It's, it's very basic, but we haven't done it heretofore over the last 200 years. Everybody identified institutional inertia as an issue, um, whether it be universities, whether it be governments, whether it be professional associations as not being up to the job of reacting fast enough. Everybody everywhere, including Beijing, said there was some leadership deficit. Our leaders, our leaders don't get it, or they're not bold enough or brave enough to seize the initiative. And then two very existential questions came out of our discussions. We, remember, we involved 400 people in almost every continent and had two conferences around us. And everybody said, well, the climate change prognosis does ask the question, what does it mean to be human? And therefore, what is our relationship to the planet? Very large existential questions. How am I doing? I'm doing fine. Um, <clears throat> okay. So let's move into that area of uh, new economics, of what this thing that I've proposed here, this low-carbon, sustainable enterprise economy, might look like and start with some ideas. This, is, this guy, Adair Ch Turner, um, was, um, uh, was in charge of the uh, Confederation of British Industry. I don't know what this is the equivalent in, the, in Australia, business... And the largest business organisation, anyway. Business Council, okay. Um, now in charge of the UK Financial Services Authority. So this is not a man who ha doesn't have a business background. Um, 
we need to dethrone the idea that maximizing the gro growth in measured prosperity GDP per capita should be an explicit objective of economic and social policy. So this debate is one that's very strong. It's uh, uh, now running at a, a fast speed. And many of you will have uh, heard of Sarkozy's um, commission on redefining wealth uh, that had Joseph Stieglitz and Amartya Sen reported a couple of months ago. Does this ring a bell? He commissioned this, uh, an amazing report, really, uh, uh, two people, great stuff, but this, this fits in. So we are getting to the point, I think, where uh, people are beginning to address what Keynes said in 1933, that within 100 years we will stop talking about economic growth and start talking about well-being growth, and it's 80 years later. So we're getting to that point where we start redefining what we mean by wealth and what it is uh, to live um, happily and sustainably. Um, but there's a quote from John Stuart Mill, just going back a little bit. So, um, towards what ultimate point is society tending by its industrial progress? When the progress ceases, in what condition are we to expect that it will leave mankind? That's a little prescient, isn't it? It's a great quote. Um, by the way, I've taken these last two from a wonderful piece of work by the New Economics Foundation. I acknowledge them in my work. I've acknowledged the other places. Do you know the New Economics Foundation? Done a lot of work on, economic, on alternative models. I uh, just brought out uh, a report, large report, on, um, on the death of growth or growth no more. Um, very, very useful uh, document. Um, and you know uh, Richard Layard's work on uh, happiness and happiness economics. Is it possible to put happiness in front of economics? But anyway, not the dismal science, but the, 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 the happy science uh, at uh, the LSE. Economic growth is indeed triumphant, but to no point for material prosperity does not humans have, does not make humans happier. Okay. So you can see where I'm going. Now the, the other uh, thing, we've just sent a book to the publishers on perspectives on human security and this may work with some of you that are in international relations or public policy human security. Does this ring bells for some of you? It's a new term for lots of people. <coughs> um, and Amartya Sen again has been at the heart of defining what it uh, means. Um, 1994 it was used first by the uh, UN then there was a, a, a UN commission on human security with Sadako uh, Ogata and um, Amartya Sen, from which this is, this is a report, Human Security Now. But this is about redefining international relations, which I think is also one of the um, optimistic places that we're going. And I deliberately being eclectic in pulling things together as well. Um, Taking security as an issue for individuals and communities rather than the paradigm that operates at the moment, which is negotiations between uh, states, in other words, international security. Uh, because most of the, most, many of you all know that my background is in peace research. Most of the people who've been killed since 1945 have been in interstate conflict rather than international conflict. Um, and of course, most, many, I should say, change that word to many. Um, of the nation states represent, represented at the United Nations are the very states that have killed their own peoples. And therefore, protecting individuals and the responsibility to protect has become uh, a significant uh, discussion, of course, in the Asia-Pacific region. There are a number of countries that fit uh, that particular model. Uh, so I think also that we're working on a new definition of security. Uh, particularly in this case human security, and I'll come back to that. And I think that that addresses one of the problems with uh, China as well, and where we go from now in terms of negotiating new climate change, because, you know, there's a meeting in Bonn in May to set the preparations for the next 
what will be COP16, which is Mexico, next year. Uh, by the end of January, all the participants in Copenhagen, all the nation states, are supposed to have reported on their emissions targets. In fact, that date has slipped. We're now to March, and it was decided that uh, we wouldn't hold nation states to that. So I think the way in which we negotiate this future is really very interesting indeed. And one of the greatest failures, therefore, of Copenhagen was the failure of international diplomacy as much as anything else. So if we're going for this um, <clears throat> new economy, which may be based on um, a human security um, paradigm, um, and this redefining of wealth, which is, I think, what uh, everybody in not only the Asia-Pacific region but everywhere else is now um, thinking about, <clears throat> it's about understanding planetary resources. It's about looking at the means of providing uh, long, happy, and fulfilling lives. And some of the language here, I think, is quite funny, quite nice, using words like happy and love and satisfaction. Uh, in uh, a rather bold conversation, a conversation that's used words like um, sustainable development before rather than happiness. The language perhaps might uh, in itself be more humanised. So how many of you know about a thing called the Happy Planet Index? Okay, Happy Planet Index has come out in 2006, 2009. Um, this essentially uh, combines a number of things that it builds on HDI, Human Development Index, which I'm sure you all know uh, very well. This one uh, measures uh, life expectancy, life satisfaction, uh, and carbon footprint. So it puts three essential measures with a few others in one pot uh, to try to see if it's possible for people to live a long time, be happy, and have a low carbon footprint. Okay? Uh, it's, a, it's a massive project. It's very well funded. Again, it comes out of the uh, New Economics Foundation, but um, with a number of uh, major players. And, of course, there are various sustainable development indexes in different countries as well. So it feeds into that work. So obviously one thing, one place to start is the ecological footprint worldwide. And you've seen this measure as well. Um, of if we all lived like people in the U.S., we would need four planets. Um, and you can see most Africans only need one planet, and Australia needs two to four planets, as does uh, most of uh, Europe and, and Japan. You, you must have seen these as well. But if you combine that set of statistics, and it's interesting looking at the Asia-Pacific region to, sh to see that it's relatively low, of course, uh, and back to that quote from, from the Chinese about uh, most of the damage has been caused by you guys who have industrialized over the last 200 years and uh, are still industrializing. If you put that against life satisfaction as well, how happy people are, and there are various ways of uh, measuring that, uh, you can see that there's a direct correlation uh, between uh, these two, ecological footprint um, and um, life satisfaction. And then if you put that against life expectancy as well, there's also a correlation, except you'll see there's one big difference there, which is uh, South America. So if you put those three together, uh, you can then come up with a map um, of uh, putting countries in different areas. And you'll notice that actually uh, the ones out to the right here, my right anyway, out that way, um, which are the Middle East and the Western world, as they've termed it, uh, which have a high ecological footprint. Um, but it is actually possible to move to the left there. And you'll see that the countries which have a low footprint um, and live a long time and are happiest are actually mostly South American countries, which is interesting. 
And the reason this is a real, really important learning point as to how have some countries managed to develop their economies uh, so that they manage to score well in three and how have others failed so miserably. So there's masses of amount of data to be um, mined here uh, to look at different public policy developments over um, periods of years, uh, look at different cultures. Uh, and you'll see, of course, this, unfortunately, all these squares down here are, are most of the um, African countries. So this is, I think, in terms of modelling the future, I'm just giving you some of these. So this is the happy um, performance index. Uh, you see certain countries come up the top again. It's just really the same as we've just been looking at there. And you'll see China, of course, the biggest player in the Asia-Pacific region and South Asia, uh, doing quite well in terms of the happiness index. And other countries see Australia um, down near the bottom. And the country that came top, I should have asked you because you hadn't looked at it, was Costa Rica. Now, Costa Ricans uh, live on average about a year longer than, average, than Americans, but have about a quarter of the uh, ecological footprint of the average American. Uh, a very high literacy rate, they live a long time, etc., etc., etc. And then the second country was Jamaica, etc. And so the results that fell out of this piece of work are really quite interesting and quite surprising. People didn't, this wasn't expected that you would end up. And I'll let you go to the Happy Planet Index and dig around there at, at the methodology and the rest of it. But it, we're beginning to work in a different direction here. If we're going for a low-carbon, sustainable enterprise economy, some countries are already a long way down the track. So now I'm going to move on to it's a little bit of um, uh, some of the work that's been done in that area. Um, I want to move on now to the business uh, end of this, as it were. Um, and, of course, they're major players in terms of um, uh, lobbying and negotiating uh, at Copenhagen and at all the other summits as well. Um, and all the businesses that I work with understand the climate change science. I don't get deniers, you don't get anybody denying the climate change science in most large businesses, even the large mining companies in Australia, even though there's massive lobbying here against the climate change science. Actually, all those big players, Rio Tinto, BHP, Billiton, I work, there's no denial of the science there at all. They're not, um, they're not silly people. They know that it's happening. And the second thing is they know that a low-carbon economy is coming. So they know that in terms of their financial projections, they've got to price in carbon. They've got to price externalities into their business models so they'll go bust. So they're all doing that now. There's masses of work happening in that area in business. Um, and they're all hiring people and, and working on this. And, of course, the biggest problem for them coming out of Copenhagen um, was that they wanted some certainty. Everybody wants to know what the price of carbon will be. Well, it should be if we're to get to 350 parts uh, per billion it should be set at something like uh, $70 a tonne. In fact, it's about $15, $20 at the moment. What business wanted out of Copenhagen was certainty, because they know it's happening. They actually wanted nation states to get on. So as far as private uh, policy goes in this area, they've seen a failure of public policy. So even U.S. business is lobbying U.S. government to say, we need to know, how are we going to price this? How do we work this out in the future if you guys can't actually negotiate properly? So that's quite interesting. This is a piece of work which shows uh, the amount that could be saved in terms of environmental damage by business uh, done by a company called uh, TrueCost, um, but paid for by the UN. Uh, just, you can't absorb all the figures, but the areas where there could be increased efficiencies if we had uh, carbon pricing, if actually they knew the prices. These are some of what might be called low-hanging fruit 
that business can um, save money dramatically if it's worth their while. At the moment, it's not worth the while. It's not priced in. Um, these are just some of the areas you can see the sorts of things that we know about at the moment uh, where we have the technology, we have the ideas, we have the initiative, but there's no point if you're in business in pricing this at the moment because the market doesn't demand it. Um, so as I say, there's quite a lot of progress in this area. Um, and why am I focusing on this? Because most of the businesses in the Asia-Pacific region are global. Those Chinese companies I was talking about and the Rio Tintos and uh, the coal mining industry in, in um, Queensland and in Australia, they're global players. They're, they're not Asia-Pacific specifically. They're, they're global players. So when you see the sort of research I'm now showing, this is a piece of work done just at the end of last year by IBM, um, where they do an annual survey of, of corporate responsibility. Um, extraordinary that 60% of them said that corporate responsibility has increased in importance in the last 12 months, but there's a confusion between desire and action. But actually, only 30% of them are collecting the data uh, on sustainability-related performance, and 30% have never done so. So there's, there's, there's some movement. There's an area where they can grow. But as it says there, the lack of business leaders, executives uncomfortable to engage in sustainability discussions as the area is so complex. And this was repeated in various pieces of work. Um, the business leaders just saying that it's too difficult to talk about. How do you explain? This is back to scientific illiteracy, but it's also back to um, uh, just, it's finding it very difficult. It's a, it's a wicked problem, especially if you work in a business where you tend to focus on a single bottom line. Uh, a similar piece of work from MIT, Sloan Management Review. 92% of business leaders thought that sustainability was important, but complex, etc. But when they look, they find more opportunities than expected. In other words, the, the discourse that's now taking place shows that if we get the right political leadership, there's enormous progress we can make quite quickly. These companies, these business leaders know there's something to be done. They're just not doing it yet. Uh, this is another one which came out of the um, U.S. group of U.N. global compact companies um, who said at the moment uh, there's no reason uh, to go down the, uh, uh, the carbon capture pricing route uh, because there's no incentive uh, at the moment to do so. So back to um, <clears throat> the, the new agenda as well. I think I'll just skip over some of these because we must be coming to near the end, aren't we? We are getting we are. close. Okay, two, just want to focus on two things to finish on an optimistic note. Um, this is a piece of, this is a book which uh, we're just finishing at the moment, myself and a colleague, um, really looking at what this new economy looks like. It's called Sea Change, by the way, Sustainable Enterprise Economy Change. Um, and this is the result of the round tables I was talking about. Um, and there are different entry points um, for uh, the way in which we might develop public policy that, of course, Copenhagen was very much based around um, regulation and pricing. Those were the two instruments essentially in it. Um, it wasn't so much about leadership, which might be one way. Are, where, are we waiting for the one global leader who can be a real leader? It could be a business leader. It could be a Gandhi. Um, it could be a Nelson Mandela. But we need... Uh, a few of those. It could be based around incentives, rewards and breaks and that of course, uh, the cap and trade tends to be based on that. It could be based on other market initiatives or penalties, regulation, enabling structures or I think it could be based on mass social movements and I think that that's the area that we might feel uh, most optimistic about that a majority of people say it's time for a change. I'm being terribly optimistic here aren't I? 
and uh, Jean Paludikoff, who runs the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility here at Griffith University. She tells me I'm too optimistic because she's a scientist, and she says if you're not terrified, you don't understand. Um, but we know that through bold, bold public policy, looking at the research, this is a piece of work that was done in several continents, including um, in Australia, uh, a massive piece of work on what jobs would be created if we went down um, uh, a, a very bold public policy route. And you know, a country like China, they said, you'd gain 10 million jobs. Uh, you, sorry, you'd lose 10 million jobs by going down this route, but you'd actually gain 40 million. And they're gaining those at the moment in those clean technology areas that I outlined earlier. Uh, and they gave gains for, for countries all over the world. So we've got a lot of high-quality research about uh, where this will go, and particularly um, for this region. Interesting, the global financial crisis, the fiscal stimulus, uh, absolutely fascinating because China saw this as an opportunity to invest in clean technology. 40% of their fiscal stimulus went into sustainable enterprise economy, into clean technology. 12% uh, in the US and Australia it was only 9% of the uh, stimulus and there are lots of other figures. Best place to go for that is HSBC Bank, their website, Climate Change Excellence, has a whole review of the, what happened to those fiscal stimuluses. Very interesting stuff. So the other way to see this, um, to really finish on a positive note, and this is, um, I did a presentation at the Academy of Management last year with these, with these people, um, is, is to say, is this, and this, this was interesting in our round tables, that when I was in New York running a round table, they obviously saw this as about personal changes. You know, we will, I will personally I'll go out into the desert and come back a different person, etc. So it'll be about individual aspiration. Well, none of the people around the table in Beijing talked about individual aspiration. It wasn't about personal change. Theirs was about political change, systems change, the whole company approach. So you could enter this process at different points. You could say that for some cultures it's about individual aspiration. At some cultures it's going to be about social transformation. But in some cultures it's going to be about value chains, understanding and supply chains for companies. That may be where the greatest innovation could come. Um, or it may be about understanding processes. So if you combine these two models, um, I'll just go back to this. Uh, in terms of public policy instruments in this area, uh, and, and government can legislate, it can provide fantastic enabling structures to develop the low carbon economy without regulations and without using markets, just provide it by providing incentives around enabling structures. And then you link it in with this, this particular model here as to whether it's going to be individuals or groups of people or communities um, or mass social movement. Um, I think we've, we've got some really interesting areas uh, for different countries. So back to Asia-Pacific, I am going to finish. And the reason for putting this in here is because um, of this, this thing about Facebook, the world's third largest community. This is this mass social movement, 350 million uh, users, 55 million updates a, a, a day, 3.5 billion information shares a week, and working across territorial boundaries. And any of you who have spent any time in China will know that all the discussion about the lack of information flow in China just isn't true. There's massive democratization uh, through the 300 million Internet users in China. They're discussing stacks of things uh, that affect government. The government is terrified in China, I would argue, and I, would, I think people need to distinguish between China and the Chinese Communist Party because I think the 
un, uh, the unruliness that's going to be caused because of the clash of rich and poor in China and things like there was the milk scandal last year and Chengdu earthquake, etc. I think the discussion is very vibrant there indeed. So I'm being over-optimistic deliberately. I'm suggesting that through the Internet, if we can capture it away from the facile and the vacuous, we could use this into an instrument for mass social movement to actually change governments and change government policy. But we have to stop thinking on a territorial basis. We need to think about human security rather than international security. And the language is interesting. I could go through the literature that's coming out at the moment. All sorts of words are being used uh, in, the, in the discussion, whether it be in the academic literature or whatever else. I would argue this is the fourth revolution for humanity, which is why it's a massive change point. Uh, but the main thing is I think it's a learning point for all of us, whether it be whether you're in Indonesia, China, Japan, or Australia. And I think that's why we're in a moment of enormous flux. I will stop there. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.